you have your Bibles, uh, you can begin turning to Mark chapter 7. It's on page 819 if you have a pew Bible. So we took a break last week uh, for Easter Sunday from our series in Mark. But as Chris has been walking through uh, the gospel of Mark, one thing that we've seen is that Mark is a fast-paced gospel. We see immediately is one of the most frequently used words is Jesus is rushing from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. One thing we've seen so far in Mark is that Mark has been focused primarily on a Gentile primarily on a Jewish audience. And a Jewish audience would be those who had grown up in the faith, those who were descendants of Abraham, who had been part of the community, the household of God. And what we're going to see today in this text is we're going to see a shift in the, in the narrative of the gospel of Mark from the, out, from the insiders to the outsiders being the Gentiles. And as we looked at two weeks ago, the previous passage to this, Chris was sharing about the religious leader's view of religion and the power of the gospel. One thing he talked about that is going to kind of set the stage for today is the Pharisees and the religious leaders had a me-centered religion. It was all about them. It was about what they could do. It was about what they could accomplish. It was about the boxes that they checked. It was about their pedigree and their resume. And Jesus calls people to something totally different than that. He calls us to, Chris called it a God-centered relationship. That through Jesus, we can have grace. We can have hope. Not based on our own performance. Not based on being good enough or smart enough. But based on the fact that God shows us great grace. And this morning we're going to look at two different texts that show us the power of grace. If you're like me and you've grown up in church and been around Christianity a long time, grace is a word we hear and we have a tendency to yawn at. This morning my hope and my desire for you is that you see grace in a new way, that you're once again compelled by the gospel to see who Jesus is and what he's about. So if you have your Bibles, if you join me standing in Mark chapter 7, We're going to read starting in verse 24. This is the word of God. And from there he arose, speaking of Jesus, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this reminder this morning. God, even in a text that on the surface looks difficult and harsh, God, that your gospel meets us where we are, that you change us, and that you have taken us into your home, into your family as a child of you. God, open our hearts today and speak through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As this passage begins, Jesus finds himself in a place that many of us probably often do. 
You know those days when you just need a day, Liz and I had this yesterday, where you just don't set the alarm, you sleep late, you have a time to yourself and time away from the craziness and the hustle and bustle of life. Jesus is going seeking a break. He's been in the immediately gospel. Everything has been one thing after the next thing after the next thing. And he's just going to get a breath and relax. And as he goes, he goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile primarily areas. And thus far in this gospel, the focus of ministry has been on the Jews. And so as Jesus went to the Gentile area, maybe he was going because he figured that if he would go to this new area, that people might not know about him as much. He wouldn't be bothered. It would be a time to take a rest. But if you're Jesus and you're healing people and you're teaching and the compelling message of your love for people is something that is the topic of conversation. The word is getting around, the excitement is building, not just in the Jewish areas, but in the Gentile areas as well. And so he shows up at this house to try to get alone, but it doesn't work like that. Because we see that there is a woman who comes to him. This woman has had a rough situation. Her daughter, you see, has been demon-possessed. She's been to every doctor she can think of. She's tried every option she knew to try. You can imagine the awkwardness this would bring to a family. She stood and watched a daughter struggle with this. This woman is seeking help. She's seeking hope. And she's heard that there's hope found in a man named Jesus. So verse 25, this woman whose little daughter has been unclean and had this unclean spirit comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus. She's going for help. She's going for an answer. She's looking for hope. And so she goes to Jesus. And so she, notice in verse 26, this woman is not his typical people that come to Jesus. This woman is a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician. She is an outsider. She's not part of the Jewish people. She's not been part of Jesus' mission and game plan to this point. But she knew that she was an outsider. She knew that she was not one of Jesus' normal customers, but she shows up anyway because she wants this healing. She realizes that as a parent that her daughter's in such a desperate situation, in such desperate pain and in such desperate need of rescue that she's willing to do anything. She's willing to go anywhere. She's willing to kind of follow where Jesus would go and show up there for that moment where he might look at her. He might decide to heal her daughter and this tragedy that had defined their life might finally be over. So she shows up and she throws herself at his feet and verse 26 says that she's begging him, Jesus, please, Jesus, please cast this demon out of my daughter. Jesus, it's been too long. We've looked for hope in all these places and we can't find it. So as she shows up, Jesus responds in a fascinating way. Verse 27, and he says to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. This seems like an offensive statement. Jesus is not even really addressing the woman or the woman's issue. He launches into a parable. And on the surface, this seems like a really offensive parable. Like even in today's day, if you refer to humans as dogs, you don't have very many friends and have ongoing relationships with those people. The word dog was typically used by the Jews to refer to the Gentiles. 
And, you know, when we think of dogs, we have multiple dog options. You have the cute little purse dog that may go with you to Walmart and have a little yappy bark, yap, yap, yap. Or you have the dog that is the street dog, the dog that you would probably see in a third world country. One of those dogs that you look at and you think, he has more diseases than I want to be around. When you think about the Gentiles and you think about um, the Jews' views of the Gentiles, they did not view a cute little purse dog. They felt they viewed the sketchy street dog that you wanted to stay away from. So is Jesus just jumping on the bandwagon? Is Jesus just joining in with the cultural superiority complex that the Jews had over the Gentiles? No, what's interesting here is the word that he uses for dogs is not the typical word that the Jews would use to slam the Gentiles. It's a word like for a puppy. When you think about a house dog, during that time, the Gentiles typically had a household pet like many of us would today. So Jesus is not seeking to demean the woman as a person. He's showing her a powerful picture of her place and God's place. And the reality is this morning we can see where we stand before God and the beauty of grace that moves us somewhere else. And this picture of a parable is a picture of a dinner table. Not that different from any dinner table for a family, especially when you have a furry little critter like this one. This is Sassy Birdsong. She is the proud child of Ben and Liz Birdsong. And Sassy is just as spoiled and as babied as her frou-frou name would suggest. She's a four-year-old King Charles Cavalier Spaniel. And if you can tell by her weight, she loves food and loves to beg for food. Even begging for the food to the point that there will be food in the bowl, but the food that is on the table is much more appealing than the food in the bowl. Sometimes she doesn't get the food dining order right. She comes, she begs, she wants her treats, she wants the food from the table. And as good Southern folk, we know there are certain rules about dining. One of those rules would be like that guests come and guests get to eat first. Also, the dog doesn't eat before the people. And so you can imagine this dinner scene. Sassy thinks she deserves a seat at the table, on the table, with a plate to bury her face in, but she doesn't get that. She doesn't get, she gets the leftovers and scraps. In Jesus' parable, the family that is gathered together is pretty similar to ours, except they have children. And we see this picture of the children being fed before the puppies. In the parable, the children represent the Jewish people, and the puppies represent the Gentiles. Through this parable, Jesus is saying that he came first to minister to his chosen people, the Jews, but he'll also be ministering to the Gentiles. But this won't come first, this will come second. So this is not an offensive statement about the woman's status. This is an offer to grace. But grace is coming to you second because my ministry is first towards the Jews. In Romans 1.16, Paul speaks of this order of ministerial priority for Jesus when he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. You see, the priority of Jesus was a Jewish ministry that expanded to the Gentiles. And so this woman sees this parable. She hears this story. And she doesn't stand back and get offended like many of us would. How dare you call me a dog? That's what all the Jewish people do. I'm leaving. 
No, she realizes and remembers why she's there. In Tim Keller's commentary on Mark called Jesus the King, he says this, they're cowards, they're regular people, they're heroes, and then they're parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you do whatever it takes to save her. This woman wants to save her child. This woman wants to see her daughter healed and rescued. And she's willing to ignore statements that may seem offensive on the surface, but speak to a deeper, deeper truth. She realizes that though the Gentiles might not have been the first in Jesus' mission, they still had a place. The begging puppy, sassy, though may she, she may sit on the floor and not the table, still has a place to get food. Still has a place to be a member of the family. And this Gentile woman is bold and willing to recognize the beauty of undeserved grace. Even if that grace comes her way in a way that she doesn't expect. And so Jesus responds to her, verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, which her statement in verse 28 was this. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went away and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus healed the woman's daughter. Jesus saw her faith. It takes a lot of faith to walk away from Jesus, hearing that your daughter is going to be healed and taking that walk home. That walk home to open the door is this hope not just something in my head or in my heart or in my hopes and dreams. This is hope a reality. She went to the door to find that it was a reality. Jesus the healer gave this woman and this woman's child great grace. That's what grace is. We don't deserve a place at the table, but God by his grace has given us one. There's another story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 9. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, it's on page 246 if you have a pew Bible. In 2 Samuel 9, we find ourselves in the middle of the life of King David. If you remember, King David was anointed king as a young man. And there was another king that was king at that time named Saul. Tension began to rise between the two of them. And this is... Fast forwarding in the story till after Saul and his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend, have both died. And so David comes to a point in his life where he thinks back on his friend. Thinks back on his friend Jonathan and his family and what might have happened to them. And that's where we find ourselves in Second Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Zibiah, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Zibiah? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? And Zibiah said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Zibiah said to him, He is in the house of Makar, son of Amel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Malkar, the son of Amel, at Lodabar. And Meshibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He fell on his face and paid homage. 
and homage. And David looked at him and said, Meshibosheth. And he answered him, Behold, I am your servant. And David said, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Then he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Notice that David shows the heart of God. David goes and reaches out to the the grandchild of his enemy. And he pulls him in. Typically in this culture, you want all your enemy's family to be gone. You want no competition to be king. You don't want anyone to rise up. You don't want a political uprising. So you'd want to shut this down. But he goes and calls for him not to kill him, but to bless him. And if you'll notice in verse 3, when he inquires about who the person is to the servant, Zibi responds this way. There's still a son left. He is crippled in his feet. Notice that Zibia seems shocked that David is coming to him to begin with. And then when you look at how Meshibosheth is named, he's not even named. He's the cripple. He's the disabled one. He's the one that we've pushed to the side. He's the one that we've pretended to ignore. He's the one that we hoped we'd forget. That's Meshibosheth. Why would you want him? Why do you want him to come? And so he goes and gets him and brings him in. And as Meshibosheth comes, I can imagine him thinking about what was going to go down. You know, I've read stories back in history class about them. This, the king's family of the, of the previous king, man, it's going to be my last day. As he walks into the king's courtyard, you can imagine the fear. You can imagine the concern. You can imagine... Wondering, are these breaths going to be my last? So as he comes, he falls down before David on his face. I'm low. I'm about to be dead. And he pays homage, I'm your servant, which is essentially a statement of I'll do whatever you want me to do. But David doesn't leave him there. David doesn't get the soldiers to come and take him out and... and cut off his head and get rid of him. He doesn't do any of that. It says this in verse six, uh, in verse seven, David says to him, do not fear. You can imagine how big the fear was. Stop your fear for I will show you kindness. It's a picture of grace. When we deserve judgment, when we deserved hell, when we deserved punishment due for our sins, instead of being met with a shaking fist, or an acts of judgment, we're meant with kindness. I will show you kindness for, jo- for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to be kind to you. I will restore to you all the land that Saul, your father, had, and you shall eat at my table always. Meshibosheth gets grace. He's reminded not to fear. He's given great riches. He's given great land. And most importantly, he's given a seat at the table. You see, Meshibosheth stood as the lone person left. Granddad was gone. Dad was gone. Family was gone. Found himself alone and disabled in a world where there's no help for people that find themselves in that situation. 
That's where he found himself. David went and picked him up, sat him at his table as a child of the king. He can eat always as a king's table, not simply as a guest, but as a son. And notice how Mephibosheth responds. What, last verse, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth has experienced grace. A grace undeserved, a grace that's amazing, a grace that would forever change him. So we've seen two tables and two different pictures of grace. So what does this mean for us? First application in your notes. We don't deserve a place at the table. We don't deserve a place at the table. The Pharisees and religious leaders had it wrong. They thought that their actions, their heritage, their conduct meant they'd earned a spot at the table. As we see in this Gentile woman in Meshibosheth, they understand that their place at the table is only by God's grace. You cannot be smart enough, work hard enough, be religious enough, come to church enough, go on mission trips enough, do anything enough to earn the grace of God and earn God's favor and become his child. It's only by his grace. First, we don't deserve a place at the table. Second, a place at the table comes through embracing our own brokenness. A place at the table comes through embracing our own brokenness. The woman knew that her people were step two on Jesus' mission. Yet she knew the depth of her great need, and she humbled herself before Jesus and received great grace. Meshibosheth knew that his grandfather stood as an enemy of the king. He knew what could have happened to him going to King David, but he went anyway. He humbled himself, and he experienced grace. Point number three, a place at the table comes from the invitation of the king. A place at the table comes from the invitation of the king. Just as David invited Meshibosheth to have a forever place at his table as a son, Jesus offers us a place at the table as his son or as his daughter as we place our faith in him. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth simply to have conversations with Gentile women and to heal little girls with demon possession. He came to earth to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He came to earth to die on the cross, the death we deserve to die. And he rose again from the dead, proving that he was God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, it changes us. It changes our status. It changes our identity. It changes our purpose. We're no longer dogs begging for a bite to eat. We are now sons and daughters placed at the table of the king. Let me say that again. We are no longer dogs begging for a bite to eat. We're now sons and daughters set at the table of the king. Paul says this in Galatians 4 about this truth. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God, Jesus has made us his kids. Jesus has offered us a seat at the table. And so when we gather at the table, whether that's at lunch in a few minutes that many of you are probably thinking about, or some other time in the future, when we gather at the table, we remember grace. 
Jesus on his last night with his disciples gathered around a third table. And as they gathered around the table, he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Picture of what he would go do at the cross. He took the wine and passed it around and said, this wine represents my blood that is spilled for you. It is because of the cross that we can have a place at Jesus' table. It's a place that's undeserved. It's a place that's unexpected. And it's a place that makes us a beloved child of the king. This morning we've seen three different tables. The table with the woman in the parable. The table with Meshubasheth and the table of the Lord's Supper. But the question for you this morning is, have you experienced grace? Have you realized that you don't deserve a spot at the table? Have you humbled yourself to understand that your brokenness and your sin, and yet Jesus is the one who's sufficient for that? And have you responded to the invitation to be adopted by the king? If you follow Jesus... You sit at the table as a son or a daughter. And your dad's the king of the universe. He loves you with an everlasting love. And his grace is bigger than whatever situation you find yourself in. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminders this morning that your grace meets us where we are and that your grace transforms us and gives us a place at the table. God, today, for those in this room who have maybe never accepted your invitation of grace, never responded to you, God, I pray that you would move in their hearts and in their lives. God, for those of us in this room who may have heard the story of grace a million different times, God, open our eyes to the power of grace that changes us and causes us to change the world. And God, maybe there are people that have come in here today who have a smile on their face, Pretend like everything's okay. But the reality is they find themselves just like the Gentile woman. Their world is falling apart. The story they thought they were going to live is not the story they're living. God, give them hope. Give them grace. Remind them that with you, the story is never over. Because you're the God who intervenes. You're the God who changes things. And you're the God who rescues you got to bring rescue by your spirit today in this place. And it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.